California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground Podcast. Hope everyone's having fun staying self-quarantined, staying inside with the stay-at-home order. Haven't gone crazy yet. It's been about two weeks now. It'll be about two weeks. It's going to be about two weeks coming up at Monday night, and I think that's when the president's going to make a decision on what's going on. Who can come out? I doubt California is going to be able to come outside for a while, but it'll be nice to see if we're headed in the right direction. With that said, let's start with our out-of-the-gate monologue and get things going for this episode. I saw a meme the other day and I laughed because it was the first thing I thought when this whole pandemic really broke upon our shores. The meme simply says, how are you all enjoying your free 30-day trial of socialism? And I chuckled because it was so eerily true. In a presidential election where the word socialism continues to become more popular and out in the open candidates like Bernie Sanders and AOC run the Democratic Party, socialism has been claimed to be the cure for all the ills of our society. They stand up and say, see, this is why we need a universal health care system. Or when lambasting President Trump and his $2 trillion relief package, they say, see, when corporations and rich stockholders need help somehow, we have the money, but not for climate change and single-payer single health care. While every conservative I know was not crazy about our government passing something that cost $2 trillion, maybe I'll help if you think of it as medicine that we need to get through this economic malaise. Sort of like that yucky tasty medicine you just got to take to get past it. It doesn't taste great going down, but it's what's needed to keep us from completely collapsing. Further, a lot of the bailouts that a lot of the leftists are saying for big companies are loans that need to be repaid, unlike the direct relief that is helping small businesses that will most likely not be repaid. And that's a good thing. We want the small businesses to not have to worry about paying back these loans. These are grants. And instead, direct relief is going to small businesses. But if you are or you know someone who has been crowing about how socialism will solve everything, ask them how things have been the past few weeks. Ask them if they like the feeling of going into grocery stores with empty shelves, bare of the essentials that you need to provide for your family. Or even when the shelves are semi-restocked, ask them how they like being told that you can only take one carton of eggs, one carton of milk, two bags of pasta, and etc. Is anyone a fan of the food rationing that's happening right now? I know I'm not. Or ask them how do they like being told at the government that they... Uh, that they have no more civil liberties or freedom of movement. That the government can just shut your business or your workplace with the stroke of a pen. People who worked for years to invest and grow their own business only to lose it in the blink of an eye because the government didn't deem your business, quote, essential enough to stay open. The government has the incredible power to rip you of your rights with nothing more than a proclamation. And that should scare the absolute hell out of you. Finally, the socialist screech about this is the reason we need single-payer health care. Now, ask Europe how it's doing in the face of this pandemic with single-payer health care. Not great. Spain and Italy can't contain the virus, and as a result, have thousands dead among them. 
the reason America will fare better, which is I've been saying along, than single-payer countries is simple. We don't rely on one entity to solve this problem. For all the hate and criticism that's thrown at President Trump right now, imagine what leftists would think if he was in charge of our only healthcare system. Is that what they want? Or do they want multiple entities to step up and assist with solving this crisis? If the choice was President Trump, I doubt they would want him to be in charge of the entire rescue operation. Leftists also like to bemoan you for suggesting that maybe some places can lift restrictions and go back to some semblance of normal. To that, they shout you down saying, you'll kill everyone. Our lockdown is for the collective good. Giving up everything for the common good. Hmm. Nothing screams socialism more than that sentiment. So forget if you have a job and you need to provide for your family, your sacrifice is for the common good. Forget that you worked hard to open a business at seeing grow during these booming economic years with President Trump at the helm. You losing your business is for the common good. Your sacrifice is much appreciated and we thank you, comrade. It is an interesting time in America right now for those on the left that play down how powerful government can be and how bad socialism really is. We are living it right now. We are seeing the immense power of the government we have put in place over decades. I hope people are listening. Remember, I hope people are listening. Remember this time in our history. A time when we got to see what socialism was like in America. What a totalitarian police state looks like if we simply sit, sit by and let it happen. Now remember this time come November. And remember who you hand these incredible powers to. Because as we've learned recently, socialism is really just one crisis away. So with that, it's been interesting to see these past couple weeks. And the reason I bring up what's going on in two weeks uh, in national news, I'm sure you've seen that the goal now is to get people back to some sort of semblance of normal by Easter. Easter is um, two weeks away, almost two weeks away at this point. So it will be interesting to see how they get that done. Um, next week is not Easter. Following week is Easter. So as I'm recording this. Um, also, side note, if you hear little birdies in the background, it's because there's birds outside of my studio right now. And they've been chirping and they've laid eggs. And now there's little birdies. So if you hear little birdies in the background, that's why. Um, but back by Easter is, a, a I think, an ambitious goal. I think it's an ambitious target. Um could it possibly work? I don't think we'll be throwing the shackles off right away and everyone will go back to normal and everyone's going to go to their Easter services as if nothing happened. But I could see in the next two weeks, I think things are going to move along at a more rapid pace. I think once people really, once now that we've got a lot of places gearing up and producing what we need them to produce, I think there's a possibility that a lot of parts of the country are going to be able to let people do what they want to do with some restrictions, with social distancing, stuff like that. California, not so much. I I think we should be happy that we haven't turned into New York at this point. Um, I think, again, I I want to give Newsom a little bit of credit. I'm not going to give him a whole bunch of credit because as we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, he may have used this to go a little overboard, um, but at the same time, I think it's good that California's really done a good job of sort of keeping this from exploding into an uncontrollable situation. Tri-state area really sounds like the biggest problem right now, and that, that's because of New York. And again, 
This is something I want to talk to uh, people about in the sense of what, what is called risk management. And when it comes to risk management, um, this is probably one of the more interesting classes I took in, in school uh, and specifically in law school. Um, it, it taught you how to look at things in a certain way. And of course, people are being bombarded with a lot of statistics right now. You know, they're being bombarded with statistics from people who say there's going to be a million dead or two million dead or there's going to be a hundred thousand dead or two hundred thousand dead. And a lot of things that people need to look at when they start to make these decisions is not to accept them blindly and to look at things called these what I what they're called is confounders. Confounders are things that are things that may uh, impact the result of uh, an action. So just because. You have to look at, well, why is there a high rate of coronavirus, people uh, being infected, uh, people dying in New York and in the area? And you have to look at sort of the confounders, same way people are kind of looking at the confounders of Italy. What's causing the deaths and to, to rise so quickly and the infections to rise so fast in Italy? Some things I look at bl- plainly, and I'm not a medical scientist, I'm just looking at this from a, a social standpoint, is... Well, Italy has an older population, and everybody knows that. Italy also has a population that smokes heavily. And it's very well known that smoking obviously hurts your lungs. It hurts your respiratory system. It weakens your respiratory system. Also, Italy and a lot of European countries are very uh, close and intimate with how they say hello to each other. Kisses on the cheek, very intimate. Um, Public transportation is another big thing. So public transportation... And that's one reason I think New York is probably in the problem it is right now is because New York is you think about how many millions of people share a subway every single day and how many people it took to infect those subways, get those surfaces infected, how many people cross through turnstiles and go through those subways. Those subways are probably breeding ground for coronavirus and people getting on the subway. People who commute to the city, who probably take trains into the city, and then they go back to New Jersey, or they go back to Connecticut, or they go back to New York State. Those are things, it was a, probably a hotbed breeding ground in New York City for coronavirus. And these are things that people have to start looking at in terms of statistics. It's not simply, while well, we see this number rising, 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 that's obviously bad news. We have to look at it in a sense of, well, what's causing it to rise so fast in these areas as opposed to other areas? Similarly, or uh, conversely, here in California, we're a much more car-centric state. We don't have the big systems of uh, public transportation. Yeah, there's public transportation here in San Diego, uh, up in San Francisco. San Francisco is very public transportation-oriented. A lot of people ride the buses over there. A lot of people ride the the BART, is what it's called. It's sort of the, the fast train in and out of San Francisco. But some places like L.A. are not as public transportation oriented. And even though L.A. is going under a strict lockdown right now, I think that it's going to fare a little bit better in New York because everyone knows that everyone sits in their cars in L.A. as their own little pods that they are kind of self-quarantined away from everybody else who's commuting as opposed to in New York where you have people, millions of people touching the same railing that you've touched and probably the who knows how many times these subway cars have been cleaned so it's important that people start to look at this not through the hyper sensationalized lens of the media and start to look at this and and question what are the confounders what are the things that are causing x y and z to happen um 
and to look at it with a more astute or critical eye. And I, and I urge you to go to sites that are news aggregates. One of my favorite is rantingly.com. I like rantingly.com. It's not super pro. I mean, it's, it leans more right, I would say, but it definitely has it has articles from all over the place, and you can read a lot of what's going on. They they've been posting a lot of stuff about science articles, uh, science journals, stuff like that that have no political bias. So it's important to look at a lot of different sources of what's going on out there and stop listening just to the sensationalized media numbers and saying that this is going to happen because, well, coronavirus causes mass amounts of death. Well, we have to start looking at it and say, well, why is coronavirus causing a lot of death in certain areas? And what is it we can learn from those certain areas? Um, so with that said, I, I, you know, I didn't want to get too far into that. I just wanted to talk about that because I think it's important that you do look at this critically and don't be ashamed. A lot of people are going to yell you down. It's almost like climate change in the sense of if you question coronavirus or you question the idea that maybe this isn't as bad as it is, or maybe some of the models, which we'll get to in a, in a bit, maybe some of the models that have been projecting how bad it's going to be have now been proven false. That maybe you can question some of this and say, what's going on here? Who's doing the data? Why? What, where are we getting our data from? What data are we getting? How reliable is it? Um, are we seeing not only the rise of people being tested who are being tested positive, but how many people are being tested negative? That's another thing people don't really want to talk about is even though there's a lot of people who are being tested positive and they like to show how many people test positive, which is now in the tens of thousands of people, how many people have been tested negative so far? That's another interesting thing that people really aren't showing. And I think that would help people calm down a little bit if maybe these news stations didn't have a big red tracker saying the coronavirus pandemic, you know, counting up like a like it were in a horror movie or an apocalyptic movie where you just see the numbers go up and up and up and up. And it, it, instead they said, okay, number of cases of people who are positive, they should say how many people have been tested, how many people have been tested positive, and how many people tested negative. And I think that would help a lot, but don't, don't predict that's ever going to happen. I don't think the media is ever going to want to do that because it's too sensational. It's good for people to tune in and watch this number go up and up and up and up and feel like there's no stopping this. And that no matter what we're doing, it's not slowing down. Uh, so there's a couple stories. One story is about AB5. I don't want to get into it in this podcast because it's a, a separate story. It's on the Epoch Times. I'm going to share it in the show notes for you to go check it out yourself. Basically, the gist of the story is that AB5, as we've been talking about over and over and over again, has really hampered healthcare professionals from being able to work because of their designation as an independent contractor, so they won't be able to get a lot of these healthcare professionals. I'm going to put it up in the show notes. You can read it there. Um, but this first story is going back to what we were talking about, which is the single-payer healthcare system. And it's titled, uh, Coronavirus State of Emergency Under Single-Payer California Would Be in a Permanent State of Emergency. And this was by the Pacific Research Institute. For most of us, the coronavirus pandemic is an ordeal we're slogging our way through. However, some are seizing the opportunity to appeal for support of the healthcare schemes that have failed other nations. 
Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, for one, has gone as far to claim that Medicare for All would have been more effective in handling the coronavirus outbreak than our current mixed health care system. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency. The grim twist is that under the single-payer arrangement he's grown fond of, medical care in California would be in a constant state of emergency. Earlier this year, Newsom cranked up his healthy California for All commission. Its members were instructed to determine how the state will provide coverage and access through a unified financing system, including, but not limited to, a single-payer financing system. Whatever the commission comes up with, it would only worsen an outbreak of a violent and easily spreadable disease, such as one we might have coming if the cases of coronavirus continue to grow. A government-run medical care system which will be overused and overwhelmed due to its, quote, free nature, even in ordinary times, could not handle the mass of patients. In the not-too-distant past, Canada and United Kingdom were have struggled to handle outbreaks of everything from severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS as it's called, to the seasonal flu. Quote, it's largely because these countries' government-run Medicare-for-all style list systems lack enough healthcare care prof- personnel, hospital beds, and other resources to meet the needs of their populations even in good times. A public health threat like a pandemic can stretch single-payer health care to its breaking point, which we've talked about in the sense that if you have one choke point of pain, if that choke point breaks down, you lose everything, and everything comes crashing down on itself. Uh, Pipes also notes that checking the spread of diseases requires doctors, hospitals, and public health officials to work fast and closely coordinate their efforts. Quote, that's tough to do, she says, when there aren't enough doctors or hospital beds to accommodate the sick. Absent a pandemic, a government-run or universal healthcare system would still be in the permanent state of crisis. Single-payer systems place an unimaginable uh, unmanageable strain on public finances. The California Legislative Analyst Office reckons a, quote, single-payer program similar to, sim, ugh, sorry about that, a single-payer program similar to that envisioned in Senate Bill 562, the Healthy California Act introduced in 2017, but never becoming law, could cost around $400 billion annually and require new state tax revenues in the low hundreds of billions of dollars. A government takeover of Californians' medical care would also produce a system under an endless siege because users won't regulate their consumption in a third-party payer arrangement where there is no payment at the point of service. Doctors, nurses, and physicians will be buried by demand. The only recourse available when this occurs is to deny treatment to some. A year ago, flu season that was hardly the worst of the decade pushed the 70-year-old National Health Service to the brink of collapse, Pipes wrote in Fortune. The previous spring, the British Medical Association said the NHS has reached the point of being a perpetual year-round crisis. Only months earlier, the Daily Express reported that the number of patients who die while languishing on NHS waiting lists has skyrocketed. Um, Shocking as the facts, they should surprise no one. A government system doesn't have the incentives to provide better care and extend lives and do these things more efficiently. A competitive private sector market does. This is the one reason that, as the Hoover Institute's Lee O'Hayan reported last year, Britain's NHS is now turning over some NHS operations to for-profit companies with the expectations they will achieve higher efficiency levels. It's also why Californians who can afford to 
will be traveling to states to see doctors and have surgery should Sacramento force a single-payer scheme on the state. The outbound traffic would be heavy under normal circumstances and as miserable as Los Angeles rush hour when we're threatened by future outbreaks of nasty, highly communicable diseases. So this is something I talked about a little bit in the monologue, which is that a single-payer healthcare system is not the answer to this. By no means is it, because it doesn't promote government in this sense, never promotes efficiency. It, it, it only provides the incentive for people to overwhelm the system when a crisis like this occurs and not be able to handle it. Uh, not to mention that who is going to get the benefit of a single-payer healthcare system here in California? I'll leave that up for people to figure out, but... What I'm trying to say is that more people in a single-payer healthcare system like California, 40 million people, there won't be enough people to, uh, there won't be enough healthcare personnel as is. But a private healthcare system, like one that is competitive, one that encourages efficiency, one that encourages innovation, that would be the way to really address these uh, future pandemics. And we've been seeing that now. We've been seeing lots of labs. We've been seeing lots of medical professionals in the private sector picking up the slack and really jumping into the fray and being able to address this pandemic a lot better than, uh, than any sort of government entity. And it's this private-public partnership that we're seeing right now, and I keep harping on it, is the reason why I think our country is going to fare a lot better than other countries. Because we have that ability to lean on the private sector and say, okay, can you be more efficient? Can you get this turned around a lot faster? Sure. In a single-payer healthcare system, it might not be that efficient. It might not be that easy for a private sector, as a private sector company, to just figure it out, turn it around, say, okay, what do you need from us? And we'll do it. It may be more bureaucratic. It may require a whole bunch of different things. Union workers. You're talking about a lot of different factors. If you think the government is inefficient as it is now, imagine a single-payer healthcare system in California where it's full of bureaucratic red tape, unions, people who can't be fired, stuff like that. There's no way that it would be able to handle a pandemic of, uh, of this magnitude. They should be happy that when they got these 170 ventilators, and this is news that just came out, that they got 170 ventilators in L.A., and Newsom, to his credit, didn't make a big political stink about it. He said, okay, well, there is a laboratory here in L.A. that could fix them. A private laboratory, a private company laboratory that said, yeah, we'll fix them. Bring them on down. So they bring them on down. They'll be back and they'll be back there on Monday. That's the ability of that is that there is plenty of demand and plenty of efficiency when you have a private sector healthcare system. So a lot of people on the left keep screaming, this is why we need a single payer healthcare system. It's not why this is the absolute reason why we don't need a single payer healthcare system is because it would never ever last under a pandemic of this magnitude. And in my belief, I think it needs to be even more privatized and more competitive. I think the shackles and the restraints of uh, a private sector healthcare industry need to be unshackled so that there is more competition so that there is more efficiency, so that they can drive costs lower, increase the ability to uh, to address lots of demand. But I can tell you, a single-payer healthcare system would never, ever pass, would be able to stand up, especially here in California, would never be able to withstand what is coming or what is already happening out there. Uh, here's another article I wanted to post. I'll post it in the show notes again. Um, 
again, going back to the monologue and about police state, a lot of people are saying, well, we're not at a police state yet. Um, but there's an interesting story that San Diego PD have bought uh, a couple drones, um, ironically from China. And the drones are now going to be used to uh, patrol the streets. Um uh, Meaning they'll be able to fly the drones around with little monitors and everything, and they'll be able to kind of, with the little, with a little speaker, be able to say, "This is the police. Please disperse." And boy, does that not sound dystopian, nineteen eighty-two? But I mean, it's crazy. But um, yeah, I'm gonna post that as well. Not no reason to really go deep into it, but it's an interesting article. I'll post it into the show notes. The last thing I want to talk about, and this is a little kind of a, a one-two punch coming from talking about how these statistics have really caused people to just kind of fly off the handle and maybe over respond. And it's too early to say whether people have overreacted to this or not. But I think, again, this comes to the idea that you have to step back and address the stats that are given to you. You have to kind of look at it with a critical eye. Um, So this is from calmatters.org. it's called Newsome Veers Off the Rails. <coughs> Excuse me. During his first couple of weeks of managing California's COVID-19 crisis, Governor Gavin Newsom's words and actions were impressively cool-headed and measured. Last week, however, he veered off the rails, needlessly causing alarm and confusion as Californians were adjusting to the greatest public health threat in more than a century. He, like President Donald Trump, failed to grasp that the hyperbolic rhetoric of a political campaign is not tolerable in crisis management. Newsom's most spectacular misstep was, in a letter to Trump asking for use of a hospital ship, flatly declaring, we project that roughly 56% of our population, 25.5 million people, will be infected with the virus over an eight-week period. Immediately, news outlets in California around the world amplified that huge number and scared the bejesus out of anyone who heard it. Buffeted by demands for an explanation, Newsom's spokesperson acknowledged that the number was a raw estimate unadjusted for efforts to slow the spread of infection, a vital context that the letter did not contain. Um, Important, again, remember, look at the statistics and how they're projecting these statistics. And, for, and look at it and say, okay, are these projections uh, outside of if we do nothing, if this number will balloon to be if we do nothing or if we're putting in place the stuff that we're doing now? Um, very quickly, Newsom himself appeared before cameras. Uh, I lost my place. Very quickly, Newsom himself appeared before Karen to announce a statewide order that Californians, quote, shelter in place and add the caveats that this letter sorely lacked. The numbers we put out today assume we're just along for the ride. We're not. We want to manipulate this number down. That's what this order is about. However, he simultaneously implied a justification for his letter to Trump. If we're criticized at this moment, let it be criticized for taking this moment seriously. Let us be criticized for going full force and meeting the virus head on. Newsom's second stumble involved the stay-at-home order itself. It's a rather technical document, but Newsom's verbal explanation of his provisions didn't always comport with what the document said. Moreover, its list of exempted essential activities was listed from a federal document pertaining to war, rather than being tailored to California and this crisis. It left Californians confused about they could and could not do, business owners confused about whether they should operate or must shut down and lay off their workers, and local governments uncertain 
whether their own orders were superseded by Newsom's final declaration. Finally, there's the issue of martial law, or not. Earlier in the week, while announcing that he might use National Guard soldiers to battle the spread of coronavirus, Newsom was asked about imposing martial law to enforce abatement orders. Newsom replied that martial law could be used, quote, if we feel the necessity, adding, I don't want to get to the point of being alarmist, but we are scaling all of our considerations. A few days later, when he did activate the guard, social media lit up with speculation that the governor was about to declare martial law, compelling administration officials to issue denials. We don't want this to be scary for people, Brian Ferguson, spokesperson for the governor's Office of Emergency Services, said, quote, this is a humanitarian mission to support health and safety. Each of these situations could have been avoided had Newsom chosen his words more carefully. He should have not issued his 56 infection rate projection without the context he later provided. His administration should have been more specific about what the stay-at-home order meant. And he should have not even cited martial law as a contingency unless he tended to use it. The virus itself scares and confuses people. The governor's job is to reassure his constituents and persuade them with precision to do what's necessary without adding to fear and anxiety. Um, so I always said he's been doing a decent job. There's been some stumbles. There's been some setbacks. And it's been interesting because people have even contacted me and said, well, people outside of the state saying, well, are the military patrolling the streets yet? And, you know, I'm sitting here going, well, I don't see any military and I live in a military town. I, I don't see any military patrolling our streets. And if that were even the case, I don't even think the National Guard of California could maybe lock down one city in California. I think maybe they could. Uh, I don't know if they could even lock down someplace like L.A. But with that said, I, I don't think I, I think this is, again, why you have to look at these statistics and say, what are they accounting for? A lot of these doomsday predictions are not accounting for the fact that we're doing things, that every day new tests come online, that a new test is approved, that a new treatment is being tried, that more people are recovering from this. And that's something people need to really look at, which is not really being talked about anywhere in the news, again, because it's more sensational to allow people to just believe that this is spiraling out of control and that everyone's going to get it and that we're all going to die because of this virus. I'm not saying that people, it's, it's I, I never want to downplay the people who do uh, get sick with this, people who have died from this, but I'm saying that people who are out and about or people saying at home right now have to look at the statistics and say, why are you predicting 25 million people are going to get sick? Are you predicting that without the factors of a quarantine or a lockdown or shutting things down or treatments or what's going on or more tests or more is that where you're projecting it and this is why statistics matter and statistics with context matter and this is a, a, another article uh, from the Federalist sort of the same thing um, talking about statistics and how a lot of these politicians aren't looking at the statistics they're looking at the sensational statistics they're not looking at the confounders things that they're not stepping back and saying okay what's the risk management here that's another important question that people need to really be asking themselves there is a risk management component to all of this there yes there is a risk for letting people go out and do what they want to do with no restrictions there's absolutely a risk that the virus will spread faster and infect more people and more people will be uh, susceptible to it <coughs> excuse me 
there's a there's a risk management if you say okay well some people can go out if they're responsible and they do social distancing x y and z there is risk if you shut everything down and say everyone's got to stay in their home there's risk with everything it's about managing that risk and figuring out which is the least riskful in this sense and you can't just say you can't use sensational arguments about we're going to kill everybody if you everyone goes out and does things um and again you're going to be lambasted for asking these questions because they're going to say well you don't believe in the science now i I don't believe in your science and that's the other thing you can tell people i don't believe in your science and i don't believe in your statistics where you're getting these from it's almost like the climate change argument if you disagree with the sensational people and usually it's the sensationalists on the left who want to turn this into doomsday because they have political gains or political ambition or they have this political idea of how it's going to hurt president trump and people on the right they will say to you well you obviously if you question this you don't believe the statistics they just want to believe their doomsday statistics and they want to shove those doomsday statistics down your throat and if you don't comply obviously you're trying to kill everyone's grandmother and that's where you got to be strong and say i don't believe your statistics and i don't believe what you're saying tell me where you got these from tell me what the what the method for getting these statistics was tell me if this factors in x y and z push them on this don't be afraid to push people on these questions and we all have to start kind of looking at this and saying how can we question this how can we figure out whether we're being fed really just bad information sensational information accurate information so this next article is from the federalist uh, big fan of the federalist they always do a great job this one's called inaccurate virus models are panicking officials into ill-advised lockdowns <clears throat> As U.S. state and local officials halt the economy and quarantine their communities over the Wuhan virus crisis, one would hope our leaders were making such major decisions based on well-sourced data and statistical analysis. That is not the case. A scan of statements made by media, state governors, local leaders, county judges, and more show how many relied on the same source as online mapping tool called COVID Act Now. The website says it's built to enable political leaders to quickly make decisions in their coronavirus response informed by best available data and modeling. The, an interactive map provides users a catastrophic forecast for each state should they wait to implement COVID Act Now suggested strict measures to, quote, flatten the curve. But a closer look of how many of COVID Act Now's predictions have already fallen short and how they became an ubiquitous resource across the country overnight suggests something more sinister. When Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins announced a shelter in place on Dallas County Sunday, he displayed COVID Act Now graphs with predictive outcomes after three months if certain drastic measures are taken. The NBC Dallas affiliate also embedded the COVID Act Now models in their story on the mandate. The headline of a NBC Oregon affiliate featured COVID Act Now data in a headline blaring, Coronavirus model sees Oregon hospitals overwhelmed by mid-April. Both the Oregonian and the East Oregonian also published stories featuring the widely shared data predicting a point of no return. Uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmore cited COVID Act Now when telling her state that would exceed 7 million cases in Michigan, with 1 million hospitalized and 460,000 deaths if the state did nothing. A local CBS report in Georgia featured an Emory University professor urging Governor Brian Kemp with the same point of no return language and COVID Act Now models. 
The models are being shared across social media, news reports, and finding their way into officials' daily decisions, which is concerning because COVID Act Now's predictions have already been proven to be wildly wrong. COVID Act Now predicted that by March 19th, the state of Tennessee could expect 190 hospitalizations of patients with confirmed Wuhan virus. By March 19th, they only had 15. In New York, COVID Act Now claimed nearly 5,400 New Yorkers would have been hospitalized by March 19th. The actual number of hospitalizations is around 750. Uh, I want to go back up just because this was uh, published on the Federalist a couple days ago, so obviously the numbers are changing. Um, but the point remains that the predictions are off. Um, the site also claimed 13,000 New Yorker hospitalizations by March 23rd. The actual number was around 2,500. In Georgia, COVID Act Now predicted 688 hospitalizations by March 23rd. By that date, they had around 800 confirmed cases in the whole state and fewer than 300 hospitalized. This goes on and on and on. They go over a couple more states. COVID Acts Now models in other states, include Oklahoma and Virginia, were also far off their prediction. Jordan Schlachter a national security writer said COVID Act Now's modeling comes from one team based at Imperial College London that is only it's not only highly scrutinized but has a track record of bad predictions. Now, if you don't know about Imperial College, they're the one that uh, has recently come out predicting that over five hundred thousand people in UK would die from uh, this, but were quickly debunked and they had to revoke it because it showed that they had bad, faulty data and faulty models. Uh, Jessica Hamelzoo at New Scientist notes the systematic errors researchers and scientists have found with the modeling COVID Act now relies on, quote, Shen Chen at the New England Complex Institute, a research group in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and his colleagues argue that the Imperial team's model is flawed and contains incorrect assumptions. They point out that the Imperial team's model doesn't account for the availability of tests or the possibility of super spreader events at gatherings and other issues. Among other issues, COVID Act now lists the known limitations of their model. Here are a few that seem especially alarming, considering they generate a model for each individual state. Uh, many of the inputs into this model, hospitalization rate, are based on early estimates that are likely to be wrong. Demographics, populations, and hospital bed counts are outdated. Demographics for the USA whole are used, rather than specific to each state. The model does not adjust for the population density, culturally determined interaction frequency and closeness, humidity, temperature, etc. in calculating RO. This is not a node-based analysis and thus assumes everyone spreads the disease at the same rate. In practice, there are some folks who are super spreaders and others who are almost isolated. Um, do, 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 do you want to go up down? Uh, continue to So, article goes on to say... Basically talking about how this is all faulty data, the daunting phrase, the point of no return is the same talking point being repeated by government officials, justifying their shelter-in-place orders and filling local news headlines. Democrats are not going to waste such a rich political opportunity as a global pandemic. Our Americans already witnessed Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats attempt to take advantage of economic recession with a pipe dream relief bill this week. Projects like COVID Act Now are another attempt to play the same political games, but with help from unknown behind-the-scenes Democratic activists instead. Our community leaders, the mayors, and city councils deserve better than to be swindled by a handful of Silicon Valley tech bros. 
Our governors and state officials deserve better data and analysis than a democratic activist model that doesn't adjust for important geographical factors like population density or temperature. Americans and their families deserve better than to be jobless, hopeless, and quarantined because of a single website's inaccurate and hyperbolic hospitalization models. Uh, so again, like I've been saying, a lot of these statistical data and, and models are turning out to be wrong because they're not factoring in these confounders, these extra factors that are going on out there, stuff that people are not accounting for and how it can slow the spread. Um, they like to put out these doomsday scenarios. Everything that's going wrong is obviously going to continue going wrong, but that's not the case, is that things are going to change every day. Things are changing every hour of every day. People are working around the clock around the world, which means that I don't think there's a point right now where someone's not working on a solution to coronavirus. Um, and a lot of these projections are not predicting for any sort of mitigating factors, which is what makes it scary. So again, I want to end the show with this, is that you have to look at these statistics be smart out there. And we're going to find out in the next couple of days what the administration, the federal government wants to do, what they believe. Obviously, they've been looking at it. Um, even New York is starting to say, OK, we've went from New York pause. That's their one plan. Now they're trying to transition into New York forward, which means we're moving forward from this, not staying paused indefinitely. Uh, and for all the people who keep saying, well, we're going to we're going to get um we're going to be quarantined forever. You know, just ask those people, what makes you think that? What makes you think that? Tell me your statistics. Tell me the factors that make you think that. And don't let them shout you down and say that you don't believe in science. Because you do, but you also believe in correct science and correct models and correct statistical models that predict exactly what's going on. So with that, um, stay safe out there. Stay quarantined only do what's really essential so with that i'm going to finish up today's show i wanted to really focus on that statistical idea that just question you know be don't be afraid to question what's going on out there don't be afraid to question the statistics there's nothing wrong with questioning statistics because as we've seen even the stuff that's being pumped out is clearly erroneous um and also Continue to enjoy your free 30-day trial of socialism. And for all those people out there who espouse socialism and love socialism and think it's the greatest thing ever, well, you're living it right now, so enjoy it. Um, you're going to get a small taste of it, and that's it. So until next time, make sure you follow us on Instagram, uh, on Facebook. Uh, there's a Twitter account, All California Underground. Um, also, if you want to be a part of the show and you want to send in a voice message, you can go to anchor.fm slash California Underground. Uh, you can send in a voice message, kind of like a phone call. You can call in and I can answer those phone calls. Um, also, you can email me at californiaunderground at protonmail.com. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy. Um, don't be afraid to question statistics. All right, talk to you later. Until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 